You guys know me well enough that in the presence of the Almighty God, I am not afraid to shed a tear. And the truth is that with the week that we've had, right, what our country is seeing and the brokenness, right, and maybe you have a different perspective on what happened earlier this week in Uvalde, Texas, but the truth is that regardless of how we feel, we need the Holy Spirit. I had a lot of questions this week from people, both from our church and just friends asking us, asking me like, hey, if God is good, why do these bad things happen, especially to our children? Can we bring this down a little bit? I'm sorry. And the one thing I want you to take away, and this is, I'm just starting my, my sermon here because I don't want us to start today's service or today's message without me acknowledging that there is brokenness in our country right now for 21 human beings being shot to death. And that's just in Uvalde, but we also, and my apologies for this, didn't talk about the racist acts in Rochester. I'm sorry, in Buffalo. And so, as the pastor here, your servant in this house, from up here, I need to make sure that we understand that racism is sin and that evil exists in this world. Because we might be tempted to immediately want to say, why does God, a good God, allow these bad things to happen to people? But we need to acknowledge that evil always exists. And so we can't throw that on God when people choose to be evil and act, act out on their evil. Evil exists. And don't you let the enemy win one more battle by you saying that God is not as good as he says he is. God is good. God is good. We who are filled with the Holy Spirit do not look at death as the world does. However, we hope even in the middle of our mourning. But friends, God is not defeated. And he won't be defeated. He's already won the victory. It's my job again as a pastor to remind you that we hang our hope on Jesus Christ alone. But we also defend the defenseless. We allow God to avenge evil on our behalf, but we also must stand and speak against what is evil and stand for what is good. Now, perhaps in this house, in our communities, in our cultures, we're not used to people of faith standing up and making sure that we walk together against what is evil and that we stand for what is good. But I do believe that one day when we as pastors are called into heaven and we stand before the Father, we're going to have to answer for that as well because hate is sin. Every aspect of it, even the one that you feel sometimes at home when you think nobody's listening, the Holy Spirit is there. Hate is sin. And our country is hurting, has been hurting, and may be hurting for a while longer until we all realize that what we need most of all is the Holy Spirit. It is the solution for this. On top of what scripture tells us to stand for the defenseless, to love justice, but we need Christ. It's easy for us if you think about it, right? We, like many of us, we talk about racism and the divisions because of race in our country. But the truth is, because we're a multicultural church, in our own homes and perhaps how we grew up, we felt 
these words against other groups. Yes or no? Anybody willing to admit this? Because I'm Hispanic and Latino. So when we talked about other groups of people, there was also this oppressive taught, this oppressive language that was used in our homes, perhaps, or extended family, or my grandfather, who we hope is not with the Lord. But I heard him say some things that even at an older age, I would be like, hey, Grandpa, you can't say that. You can't say that. But it has to start in our homes. Because from our homes is why it extends out. This, I was just talking to somebody about what happened in Buffalo. Listen, the parents can cry all they want, but it started at home. So can we have that same challenge, not only to teach our ch- children Christ, to invite the Holy Spirit into our homes, but also to teach them love, true, genuine love in action. If I, I was reading something as I was studying today, and I'll, I'll move quick. In 1948, there was a martyr, a Christian martyr, Jim Elliott, and he wrote this in his journal, and I have it here for you guys too. He says, I seek not a long life, but a full one, like you, Lord Jesus. Jesus died at 33. I'm 35. I have been for a few years. I'm actually 35. That wasn't a lie. Two years later, he wrote, I must not think it strange if God takes in youth those whom I would have kept on earth till they were older. I hope this, like, I hope you hear this. I must not think it strange if God takes in youth those whom I would have kept on earth till they were older. God is peopling eternity. And I must not restrict him to old men and women. And as I read this, I thought about those kids. And for those of us who are parents, this tragedy stuns us a little differently. And maybe you don't even have to be a parent. Just somebody in your family, your nieces, your nephews, if you're a teacher, your students, that these little kids, I have a friend here, Sergio, who is gifted in services to the youth And on Wednesday, he invited me just to stand with him for a moment. And one of the first things he says was, today, 19 kids went into school. They just wanted to play with their friends. Their parents just wanted them to learn. They came in to have a good time. And I just thought about my daughters. And 21 people never got to leave alive from this school building. And I hope it sits heavy. And if you're someone who's struggling with, like, hey, these things just happen, you know, remember that also in the gospel, it invites us to mourn with those who are mourning, to hurt with those who are hurting, to be joyful when it's time to be joyful. But right now, it's a time to mourn. It's a time to hurt and realize, like, hey, something has to happen. But above all things that need to change, the greatest change that our country can go through is receiving the Holy Spirit. With us receiving Christ, everything changes. We've learned that a church on fire has the Holy Spirit. That was week one, right? Where also that a church on fire is bold and prayerful. And today I want us to look briefly, quickly, at a church on fire that is both brave and also transformed. We ended last Sunday with talking about boldness, right? We all stood up and we prayed a prayer of boldness because to be a church on fire, it's to be a church on mission where you know that everything that God has given you, he has given you so that you could make disciples. That's what we learn in this church. 
If if you're not about discipling making, this may not be your church. Because our only job is to make disciples. Because the resolve for a broken world is to lead them to Christ. Because even those who are evil, born in evil, sitting in evil, taught evil can be changed and transformed by the Holy Spirit. So we've covered up to chapter 6 now. On Friday night, we talked about chapter 6 and how seven men were called into service to the church. A man named Stephen was one of them. I'm going to run us through verse chapter 6 and chapter 7. You have your Bibles in front of you if you want to kind of comb through that while I'm sharing here. So in chapter 6, we see a man named Stephen as one of these men that are chosen to serve. So what happens, let me give you a little background in chapter 6 earlier The apostles stand up and say, hey, listen, we've been charged with preaching the gospel and teaching and making more disciples. Because remember, this is the early church. People are coming to the Lord in the thousands in one day. Oh, Acts. I'm sorry. The whole series is on Acts. Um, My apologies. So Acts chapter 6. Seven men are chosen to serve because the apostles are saying that they need help. I'm not going to call myself an apostle, but as a pastor in this house, I say to you today, we need help. We've been saying that for weeks, still asking and inviting people into service. And so for those of you who think that the church is really just about us coming and being served, I invite you to read Acts chapter 6 from verse 1 to 7, and it's subtitled, Seven Chosen to Serve. So Stephen is one of these men that is basically voted into these roles of service. Scripture says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and power. It also says that he performed miracles and signs among the people. So the cool thing here is that the apostles stand up and say, hey, we're so busy trying to preach and teach and get the church to grow, not just in numbers, but also in the knowledge of Jesus Christ to get to know him, that we need help so that we can feed those that need to be fed, right? Like the good works portion of the church. We need help. We need hands. They choose these seven men. What's amazing about this is that these seven men that were chosen from among the people weren't just given tasks. They were given the Holy Spirit. And because of the Holy Spirit, they were also given power. Not powers, power. So in the same way that the apostles were walking down roads, remember we talked about Peter, where in the shadows people were healed? Now these men that were simple servants to the church were now also able to heal. I mentioned last week that although in the book of Acts we see dozens and dozens of occasions of miracles, works, and wonders, the book is not about miracles and wonders. It's about the Holy Spirit. Because the one thing all of these men have in common, and women, is that they have been filled with the Holy Spirit. So perhaps, and I hope that you are like me, where there is this desire from within to be able not just to have powers, but to have the power, the Holy Spirit. So that I, as your pastor, when I'm called upon into your life to lay a hand or to pray over you, that that same power would come through these prayers and through our hands. Amen? Would you desire that for yourself? 
So also now, a little bit later on in chapter 7, we see somebody that sees that these men of God, at that point Philip, is doing all these works and wonders. And he's like, hey, what do I have to pay you to be able to do that? I'll tell you what, there is a high cost and it's not money. The high cost, like what I'm asking you some, asking some of you today, which is to go into these waters. It's a high cost. Oh, you know what, Isaac, I don't, you know, I don't think today's the day. I don't think it's today. I mean, I love Jesus. But you know what's tough about baptism? This is something that Pastor Scott, for those of you who, who knew or know Pastor Scott, he was the pastor here before me. There were a lot of people who would say yes to Christ with their mouth. But when it was time to invite them into baptism, there was a big wall. It leads us to wonder why. Has a decision actually been made in here? So we often relate it to marriage. Babe, I told you I love you. Yeah, but I want to be married. Yeah, but you know what? I, mm. I'll pray about it. And I'm going to keep praying about it. And I'm going to take every excuse in the book to never make the decision to make a covenant. Because baptism is out loud. That's where people struggle. Because I can say in my own personal, yes, Jesus, I receive you as my Lord and Savior. But please don't let anybody know that. Because it takes too much work. And they already know me. And I don't want to lose my friends. And everything that I've known to love in my life. Because saying yes to you out loud would be too much. And it would require change on my end. Lord, save me from change. Same thing with marriage, right? We want to enjoy in what can be beautiful out of this, but we don't want to commit. So this man named Stephen is performing these miracles, works, and wonders. Because of what he's doing, he's arrested in chapter 6. They're bringing him in. And the priests, remember we talked about these chief priests. Anybody who was doing Jesus' work is a threat. And so they bring him and arrest him. And they force or convince witnesses to create false testimony and to say that he, Stephen, is a blasphemer who denies God's power, which is insane because no one around him is seeing and operating in the power of God the way Stephen is. But they lie on him and they say, hey, to the chief priests, he is a blasphemer and denies the power of God. In chapter 7, Stephen, in the beginning, we see that he is brought before the council, the chief priests, and he is accused of blasphemy and he's asked if this was true. Remember, this is a lie, but they still dare to ask him, is this true? Stephen begins his defense by delivering the longest address in the book of Acts. He gives these religious folk a history lesson of the unfaithfulness and sinfulness of their own people from their own scriptures. Did we get that? He stands up, gives them this delivery, and he uses their own book, the Torah, to demonstrate to them that they are the blasphemers, that they are the ones who have denied God's power. And he ends this discourse, this long address to the chief priests with a rebuke. 
in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, if you'll join me there. He says, you stiff-necked people, in case you thought that rough language didn't exist in the Bible. And I'm, don't insert your own expletive there. I know some of you the Lord is still working through. Amen. <laughs> he says, you stiff-necked people. I'm going to say that to somebody one day. Uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always, oh man, you always resist the Holy Spirit. He's speaking to religious people. Uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, and so do you. Can you imagine the boldness? Because back then, there were people like somebody I know named Saul who were sitting on this same council. Saul of Tarsus sitting in this room looking at other believers, fighting for their life, but more importantly, fighting for the gospel. And instead of Stephen defending himself, he rebukes them. He says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Because in this discourse, he's using Jewish history. He's talking from Abraham and Moses and about Jacob and David using their own religion against what they were trying to accuse him of. So he says in verse 52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered, right? This is after Jesus is killed. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, who, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who have received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Because the law was meant to lead them to the righteous one. But they got stuck on the law. If you do not pursue the Holy Spirit, then you persecute him. If you are someone who is unsure, if you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, it is your task to search for him and to pursue the Holy Spirit for yourself. And if you do not pursue the Holy Spirit, if you say that you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that you are a Christian and do not carry the Holy Spirit, then you are actually a persecutor of the Holy Spirit. Because if, you're, if we're not in friendship and fellowship with the Holy Spirit, Scripture says that we are in enmity with the same. Enmity means enemies. So not only does he not know you, you are his enemy. That better hit you. Stephen proved to the religious these three things. First, they had no understanding of even their own identity. They were notorious for rejecting all men that God sent to help them from Moses, right? Remember, as he delivers them from captivity and still constantly over those 40 years turned to these gods that were man-made all the way to Jesus. And that's what Stephen is referencing. You have denied every prophet that led you to the light of the righteous one. And third, they disobeyed their own laws. All of this while he is facing punishment for declaring the name of Jesus. 
and doing these miracles, works, and wonders. They were offended by these truths that Stephen spoke. And like with Peter and John, they needed to find a way to shut these men and women up. Stephen proved to be a challenge to the religious, and just like Christ Jesus, they had to fix their problem. Can you imagine what the fix was for a problem like this? Stephen had to die. After Stephen rebukes these men to their face in this council while on trial, they anger and they throw their fists in the air. And while they rush Stephen, he looks up at heaven, at heaven and begins to declare the glory of God. And in Acts chapter 7, verse 56, he says, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He says all of this while these religious people and those around them, because trial at this time would allow the community to come in so that they could bear witness to what happened when people accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. They had to prove a point. Stephen becomes the first Christian martyr. He's stoned to death in front of the public. What a trial, huh? Acts is beautiful because it shows us, this is real too, this is, not a, this is not a fable, this is not a metaphor. I was watching a documentary this past week that was trying to prove or demonstrate scientifically how some of the biblical miracles happened and when he was regarding, when he was talking about Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot's wife being turned into a pillar of salt, he said it was a metaphor. No, it wasn't. No, it was not. Acts is not a book of metaphors. This is real. And this is what our brothers and sisters went through so that you and I today could sit here and stand here talking about the Holy Spirit. Do you see, do you see the challenge of why it's important for us to not deny his power by being quiet when we have a chance to worship? Do you understand this? Because people have lost their life for you to be able to get to know Christ. And what lack of gratitude when we have to be forced to say thank you, Lord. Would you guys stand up and worship with me? I'll let somebody else, I'll let somebody else go on Friday night and worship for me. Maybe I'll get some of their leftovers. That's how we, that's how, that's, that's that natural ingratitude that we have, though. So here we see Stephen, the first. He made a decision. He knew that he could face death. And he said, you know what? I choose death. Because by me choosing death, in 2022, One Life Christian Church would know what the cost is for me to say yes to Christ. And by the way, people are still getting killed today because of Jesus. I don't want you ever to think that because we're sitting in a comfy building on these cushy chairs, cushioned chairs. Let me keep preaching. I'm from Hempstead. That's, I mean, I'm used to preaching in the street. So it's a little different when we're in this beautiful building. I'll get us out of here, though. That's not the point of what we're praying about. Stephen becomes the first Christian martyr. A bad thing happens to a man of God. Yes, bad things happen to good people. Friends, evil exists, but God is still good. 
Amen. In chapter 8, we're told that a great persecution began on that day because the Christians were mad. Guess what? When something bad happens, Christians, we get upset too. But we get upset with action. Righteous action, because there's a difference. There's sinful anger, and then there's righteous anger. So when we choose to get angry, what type of angry do we get? Do we just go and cause trouble in the street? No, we do not, because disorder is also sin. We stand for what we believe is good because the Holy Spirit is our convictor and he leads us and we stand boldly. And even if we get hurt and attacked, but we stand boldly and that's what we see here. Chapter 8, the persecution begins and then all of these Christians start spreading out. See, God used a bad moment, a martyr, to push these Christians out of the building. That's how Christianity started to spread out of Jerusalem. This bad thing called persecution is what spread the gospel aflame throughout all these areas, which included the north of Africa, ultimately all through Africa, through all of Europe, which didn't exist then, but what is now today known as Europe. The Bible says that they were scattered and the Christians fled to different cities as they fled this persecution. We meet another one of these seven men who were chosen to serve. His name was Philip. He was also a man, it says, that was filled with the power and the spirit. We read of him healing and doing other mighty works. And if you'll join me in Acts chapter 8, verse 26 to 40, because this man, his name was Philip. And this is where I want to end today. But I'm not almost done, so hold your seats for a second here. You heard me preach a few weeks ago about a man from Ethiopia who was a eunuch. And I want to read that together here. Verse 26, Acts chapter 8, verse 26. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and asked, do you understand what you were reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. Do you know what that means? That means that as Jesus hung on this cross, he did not complain. That as Stephen faced his accusers, he did not complain. They had a job to do. I lost my place. 33? Just kidding. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth 
And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Funny story, we're going to stop here. I read from the ESV. The ESV does not have verse 37. But King James Version does have it, and the New King James Version does have it, so I added it here. Verse 37 says, Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I didn't want to leave that out. Now, this is called textual variation. It doesn't mean that my Bible lies to me. It just means that, remember, these are translations from the original. Okay? So it's just them putting it into other verses. For those of you who are reading in your Bibles and you don't see verse 37, this is what it says in the King James. Verse 38, And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now, some of you have had tensions with what happened in the last two times we baptized. Because a lot of us who have grown up in the church, remember you had to go through Baptism University to get baptized? You remember that? Right? They brought you through every single fear that you would face in the world so that you could maybe decide to go into the waters in baptism. But we see here in Scripture that the response was immediate. My job is not to convince you into baptism. And if I have ever convinced, I or someone else have convinced you into baptism, will you forgive us? We'll have to answer to that one day in heaven. I'm not here to convince you into baptism. The spirit within you asks for it from you. And your response is to say yes or no. But the story of the eunuch is beautiful because... If you realize in this story, he's coming down from Jerusalem going back to Africa. And he's a man of influence. He's not by himself. It says that he's in a chariot, which means that he has influence. He controls the money for the queen of the Ethiopians. He's a man of great influence who was in search for something to fill him. It says that he came to Jerusalem to do what? To worship. Do you know how far Ethiopia is from the Middle East? Some of us are driving 30 minutes to come to church. And we struggle. He was looking for worship. I just, there's something that I need, God. But I don't know what it is. So this is what God knew. There was a man named Philip that this eunuch had an appointment with. But what's beautiful also is that although this Ethiopian man, and maybe this has been you if you are new in the faith, where you want to read the Bible and you want to understand, but you, like, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. And you read and you read and you read. But remember, God is the God, our Jehovah Jireh. He is our sufficiency. So where he knows that we lack, he is able to give. Philip was the response to the eunuch's faithfulness. Because this man was reading the scrolls. He was reading Isaiah, specifically Isaiah chapter 53. And in his faithfulness, God sent him someone who could explain it to him. And he took the eunuch's doubts, perhaps, about what he was reading, and he used it to bring him the water of all waters, the food of all foods, Jesus Christ. And what was the eunuch's response? What prevents me from being baptized, he said. And I ask you the same today. What prevents you from being baptized? 
for those of us who haven't been baptized. And let me take this opportunity as I finish up. Some of you may have been baptized a long time ago, but it was somebody else's decision. Some of you may have been baptized, but you never actually felt that you made the decision for yourself and that you actually agreed to receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Some of you were baptized as children by your parents. And with all love and respect to your parents, who even though I don't know them, I love them dearly, it's not baptism. What we see here is baptism. A person making their own decision to come into the waters and say, Lord, today I make covenant with you. When I was starting to go through seminary and all my classes and I started to think about baptism and I said, Lord, should I be rebaptized? Because I'm also not teaching rebaptism. If at some point you made a decision and you lost your way, you don't have to be baptized again. Because some people think that baptism is a restart, but no, it's not. Baptism is not an assurance that tomorrow you won't sin. This is a decision that you are making out loud to die to yourself and be raised with Christ. But the one thing he does know, and we know that because of the cross, is that he knew that we would have debts that we could not repay. But he sees the depth of our heart to say, Lord, I trust you. And this is symbolic, friends. I don't even know if this water's warm. It's not cold, I promise. <laughs> but there's nothing magical in this. This is faucet water, just like at your house. There's nothing magical about this. The miracle and the wonder is in the Holy Spirit alone. This is symbolic, but it's also necessary because some of us think it's an option, and it's not. It is not an option. This is a mandate for everyone who cries out the name of Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And so like this Ethiopian eunuch, what prevents me? So what happened was that as they're riding around in this chariot, let's read it because I don't want you to just take my word for it. Verse 38, and he commanded the chariot to stop after Philip speaks, right? In verse 37, he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So much power in one verse. There wasn't a whole class. There wasn't a whole theology degree. There wasn't, he understood one portion of scripture that Isaiah 53 was talking about Christ, the Redeemer. He receives in his heart, in verse 37, he says, yes, I do believe, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and immediately Philip walks his disciple to this puddle of water next to his chariot and baptizes the man. I'm not here to convince anybody. I'm here to ask you to say yes to something that you know Christ himself has been asking you to do. And like I said, I've been asking this entire week for people to sign up. I sat in my class at 7.30 on Thursday night on Zoom waiting for somebody to log in and nobody showed up. But I have a job to do. Can we close our eyes?